Jesus, I pray that you give us wisdom and discernments, that you would, that you would help us to submit ourselves and what we think we know, what we think we understand to the truth of your word, that it might inform and shape the way that we see the world, that we see you, that we, the way we see one another in ways that are new and insightful and, and refreshing. And Lord, um, we're just grateful that you bring the healing that the centurion is asking for, that we can come to you in the same way. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. So this passage is, at first glance, looks really straightforward, right? Essentially what Bryce just read for us is that there is this centurion, this Roman officer in the military who has a need. Jesus has compassion and goes to him like he almost always does. And then the centurion sees him, knows he's coming, appreciates his unique authority because he's heard the rumors of his miracles. And Jesus is amazed at the depth and degree of his faith that he doesn't even think that Jesus needs to be there, present physically, in order for him to do the healing. And so his response is to give grace and to heal the centurion's servant. Now, all of that is absolutely true. Uh, and we could probably, I could probably just like stop now and be like, that's the sermon for this morning. However, there is some depth to this passage that is really hard for us because we are kind of modern, individualistic Westerners that, that actually makes this deceptively multi-layered and deep. But also, I think we kind of read this, and, and maybe this is you or maybe this isn't you, but I think the temptation as Westerners is to read this and, and think, oh, he, he built a synagogue, and so this is kind of a transactional tit-for-tat relationship. That this, where is actually the grace of Jesus in this? Because it seems like he's repaying him for a favor. Well, I want to encourage you that, that actually that's not here, the case, and part of it is because we are Westerners, because we as Westerners think that anytime you uh, conflate relationship with help or task or some kind of like work at all, that that compromises the relationship. But in most of the world, and especially in the ancient Near East, and when Luke was writing this gospel and when Jesus was ministering, that just wasn't the case. It, wouldn't have, it would have been unfathomable to do so. It would have been unfathomable to separate relationship and service. And that is because they're operating in something that there's this background here I, I want to I introduce you to this morning because it's, this is one of the passages where it is most clear. And when you start to see this, you start to see it everywhere in scripture. And it's really, really cool. All right. And that background or that context is what's called a, a patronage system. Okay. That was part of the cultural context that was so much like breathing air and oxygen, nobody in the New Testament or the Old Testament would have thought to describe it or name it because it was just like, this is just, what's the alternative? This is how you do it, kind of like we do with individualism. But there are three kind of primary roles in, in the patronage system. There are, there are patrons, hence patronage, yeah, duh. Um, and they are like the wealthy benefactor, the, um, the person who is, feels a civic or social responsibility to, to aid those who are less fortunate than themselves. Then there are clients, and clients are, are those who are being helped or benefited in this system. And then there are mediators. 
And mediators, you can't be a mediator unless you're also either a patron or a client, right? Because in order to mediate in this kind of culture, you would have had to have a, an existing relationship with one or the other. So you would have to be either a patron or a client. I, that's all academic. You know, how does that actually play out? Well, like, I, imagine that you are a baker, right? You're a baker in Israel, and this is your family's livelihood. It's your profession. Your father's father uh, was the first baker. It's, it's your identity and your livelihood. But there's a tragic fire, and your bakery burns to the ground. And uh, you've lost all your tools. You've lost the oven. You've lost your supply of, of flour. Um, and so you call FEMA. No. Just seeing if you're listening. Uh, no, FEMA didn't exist, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Um, there was no such thing as insurance. Uh, there was no such thing as uh, emergency federal funds as we uh, have, have seen played out in Boulder County with the fires here. No, there's, no, there's not even, like if somebody else is at fault, you have no way to, uh, to sue somebody civilly, right? What you do is you go to a family member who, uh, you know, let's say, uh, you're a family of bakers and there's somebody else who's like a really wealthy baker and they're very successful, maybe a, a distant uncle or a cousin. And if they are able to serve as a patron for you as a client, that's the easiest solution. And what they would do is they would give you a gift of, of money or supplies to restart your bakery. But if you didn't have a, a kinsman or a family member to do that, you would try to find a family member or a friend who is a client to a patron you don't know that you maybe don't have a relationship with, and you go to them and you say, hey, here's my situation. Would you please go to this patron and, and ask on my behalf, which that person's putting their reputation on the line as well, and ask them if they would entertain or be willing to meet with me. And if they said yes and they did that, then you would you know, try to get on their schedule and you'd wait in line until you had an opportunity to, to ask and you'd plead your case. And if they said yes, then you would be given a gift. That gift, however, was not a loan. It was actually a gift. But, unlike the way that we in the West and modern day uh, interpret and understand a gift, it actually did have strings attached to it, though. Because this indebted you into a relationship with this patron to whom you would be obligated socially and implicitly, subtly, um, to, to owe basically a, a relational favor, something that's in your capacity. It didn't have to be money. It could just be some other connection, right? Reciprocity and loyalty would have been expected. And I know that as I'm saying this, it sounds, again, pretty transactional, maybe even legalistic. But this was the essential social safety net that allowed civilization to progress up to, including, and then beyond the feudal system and to, to be able to build the democratic systems that we actually enjoy now. But it wasn't just like a, it wasn't just a, a network, right? It was, the relationships here were thick. They were binding, they were robust, and they were deep and valuable, and, and you'd be honor-bound. If you broke that relationship, you, wouldn't, you would lose your social safety net. You couldn't, you wouldn't be able to do anything about it, right? Um, how many of you have seen The Godfather? Okay? Yeah, you know where I'm going with this. This is not a good example of patronage, for the record, but the Godfather being, you know, Italian and this being very much intrinsic to the, Ro the Greco-Roman culture, 
there were still vestiges of that in the, the mafia. And right, so when Don, in other words, you know, patron Vito Corleone tells his godson, who is a, a famous but aging singer, that he's going to talk to this movie director that's refusing to cast him. And he says that line, right? I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. I'm not even going to try to imitate his voice. Like, he, this is negative patronage. He's using a threat instead of a promise or a gift. But it's a very similar. He's, he's acting as a patron and a mediator to another patron for his godson, a client. Cool. Now you know so much more about the ancient Near Eastern culture than you did before you walked in this morning. So what does this have to do with the text? Well, the elders in this passage, they were functioning and acting as mediators. Uh, if you read in verses 6 through 8, let's refresh our memory and what, what they said here. It says, um, oh wait, sorry, 4 through 6. He goes to... Centurion heard about Jesus. He sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy, pay attention to that word worthy, to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, they're saying he's worthy because this is shame and honor language saying he's a patron, and he's one that has given to us. That means that we owe him in a sense because there are strings attached to this gift, and as a member of this benefiting community, they assumed that Jesus would be interested in being a client to this patron. That's the subtext of everything that's happening here, right? Now, it's not said in the text, but it's, you know, the, a Roman centurion is a, a Roman officer who has a hundred soldiers under his command. And so they would be responsible for the peace, stability, security, and also the kind of fairly ruthless taxation of a given locality or region. And so it's possible that part of the subtext here is it's not just also like, hey, he's done this really great thing for us. We owe him. It's all, it could also be like, well, one, we don't want that to stop. And he might if we break this honor-bound verbal informal arrangement. But also, he's got a military under his command. If, if we make him mad, this could be a threat. And so... <laughs> They assumed, and they were terrible mediators, and we know this because it says that as they got closer, the centurion sends friends to go correct the problem because they are thinking that Jesus, that the, the centurion implied or, or thought of Jesus as a client repaying a favor. But the centurion turns that upside down. Now let's read and take a look at verses 6 through 8. And Jesus went with them, the elders. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends... The word friends is important. We'll talk about that in a second. Saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant, servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. In other words, the centurion is like aghast. Like, he doesn't send elders this time because what he thought he was doing was going to Jesus, not as a potential client, but as a potential patron. And he, he represents that by sending friends, functional peers to him. Not another servant, but a peer to communicate, no, I'm so sorry, there's been a terrible misunderstanding. We got this all wrong. Jesus, I have learned and have a sense of who you are. And there's something about that that makes it clear to me 
that you operate with an authority that I don't have a category for, the closest I can think of is this idea of, of being commissioned as an officer, being commissioned and given an authority that is above and higher than the one that I have, such that when I use that authority, things happen through the word that I command. He's using his own categories and paradigm to try to understand and communicate to Jesus what something in his gut is telling him something different about this. And so when he says that he's unworthy, when he's, that he's not worthy, this isn't a statement of like moral worth, like he's a, you know, a, a worm or something compared to Jesus. It's not like a, a fear that about Jesus' holiness necessarily. It's an explicit rejection of what the elders told him when they appealed to his, his, his merit, his righteousness, his generosity. And he's saying, no, I know I can't earn what I'm asking you for. I actually need grace. To be clear, and this is, this, is, <laughs> this is why this is so much deeper than it looks at first blush, there's no way in wherever <laughs> that a centurion would get, be caught dead saying this about any Jew. Never mind, like even King Herod, no centurion would ever communicate this or give this impression. Never mind publicly in front of a crowd following Jesus. And that's because if anybody ever got the sense that he saw himself as subservient to or underneath the authority of any Jew, his ability to enforce the peace as a Roman centurion and a conquering empire would be done. He would lose all authority and legitimacy. And that's what he's giving up to do this. Like, I've, I've always wondered, like, what in the world happened to him after this when, the, when his, his commanding officer found out this is how he handled it. He might have been relieved of his duty, and he knows this. He's aware of that when he makes this decision. I'm trying, like, there are fewer illustrations than I prefer in this sermon, in part because it's hard to find modern categories or examples of this kind of thing, but the best I've been able to come up with um, besides The Godfather, which I am proud of, but this one less so, is, is the, have you ever seen the show Undercover Boss? Right? Like, it's so dumb. Uh, I'm sorry if you really like the show, but it's like manufactured drama, and it, the, the premise is that a CEO of a large company, you know, becomes an entry-level employee to, feel, to experience what it's like, and there's, like, tears because, like, oh my gosh, I didn't know it was so hard for you, and cool. Um... But like this makes that so cute and, and silly by comparison. The Roman centurion could have been executed as, for dereliction of duty. And when he sends his friends instead of another servant, what he's implying according to this patronage system is that the servant that he's asking to be healed was a peer of his as well. There was something about the rumors he had heard of Jesus that reoriented and turned his life upside down to the degree that he would have been hum This is a humility in the extreme, an incarnation that actually even potentially models and, and is very similar to Jesus' own incarnational posture towards his people. For this centurion to ascribe to Jesus the power and authority over sickness and death and creation itself 
and at a distance and at a, with a spoken word and no like, you know, magic or conjuration would have communicated and implies that he saw Jesus as at least divine in a Roman sense. But in verse 7, if you saw the word at the end of verse 7, it says, and let my servant be healed. That word healed implies far more than just the physical healing you and I know because that's actually the same word that's translated 90% of the time elsewhere in the New Testament as saved. So what he's saying, he's actually asking for something that's, that's at least hinted at being more significant and bigger than just physical healing. He is functioning as a mediator with the one who is life itself to save physically and spiritually the servant whom he loved and treasured. We just had baptism. And you could, if, you, if you thought patronage, every time you think you see patronage in the Old or New Testament, just replace it with the word covenant. And if you see the word covenant in the Old and New Testament, just think patronage. That's exactly what we're describing. It's just a different flavor of it, but it's a similar representative mediatorial capacity and system. And God uses it to communicate the heights, depths, and breadths of his love. What's really amazing about this, and this is the last thing I'll say before going, like, on the centurion relationship with, with Jesus. When Jesus heard these things in verse 9, he says he marveled at him. That word for marveled, you've heard it before, we've talked about it uh, a few weeks ago. Um, Every time this word is used in the Gospels, it, is a, it describes a reaction to Jesus performing a miracle. It describes the people's reaction to Jesus performing a miracle, and it says that they marveled at it. They were just blown away. This is one of two times that describes Jesus' reaction to something or someone else. Like no one else so far, and few after, it is a Gentile, not an Israelite, not a Jew, who gets who Jesus is and what he is trying to do. Right? One, of the, one of the really comforting aspects of, of Scripture is that there is exactly only one hero of the story, and that's Jesus. And every, every other example in Scripture is comforting because it's like, okay, that guy is in the kingdom of God? Sweet. That means I'm good too. Right? It's comforting and encouraging that God looks at David as a, an adulterer and a, a, a criminal by every, every definition of the word, he is a man after God's own heart. Oh, man, maybe God can know everything that's going on in mine and still love me. This is like one of the only examples in all of Scripture where the centurion is like a pretty good sidekick to Jesus' hero. Right? He's like the, bat, the Robin to Jesus' Batman. And if that's the case, then let's, let's do this. And this will be the last thing before we move into the Q&A. But I want to zoom out a little bit and ask, like, what does it look like to look at Jesus through the centurion's eyes? How might this passage, how might this, this example enlarge our view of who Jesus is and what he has come to do by looking at it through that lens? And that is... In the, Functionally, he clearly sees, and this is what I've been talking about the whole time, is he sees Jesus as both a divine patron and a perfect mediator. And this is a gift 
This is such good because he, as a mediator, he is our advocate on the basis of his reputation, his righteousness, his equity, and he advocates for the love of the Father, which their will is united. And so when we look at Jesus, we understand him as a mediator and an, as our patron. We can know that we are loved, not by virtue of anything other than our need, because that's what it means to be a client. You don't go to a patron because you're like, hey, I think I'm pretty awesome. I don't need anything from you. I'm good. I just want to like, can we just, you know, be in the same fraternity or something? Be in the same club? No, that doesn't happen. <laughs> the only thing that, you, the only way to enter into a client-patron relationship is with need. That is unbelievably good news. Just a, a, a few implications of this. By the way, if this last part seems a little bit um, disjointed, it's because I grabbed the wrong copy of my outline, and this is two editions past. So I'm hoping that this part is representative, and if it's not, yeah, it's been a good morning. Um, if you are a Christian, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to Jesus. And Western individualists hear that and we're like, oh, no, don't you infringe on my autonomy, don't step on me, don't tread on me. But this is good news because it means that our salvation and the hope that we can have of that, that we are loved and cared for, that this is a patron that is God the Father, not Godfather, is that means that our basis for it is something that is external from us. It is outside of us. And because it is based on and dependent on Jesus's and, and God the Father's and the, God, the Trinity's loyalty and faithfulness to his people, it doesn't matter how we feel about a relationship with Jesus. It's valid. If you're struggling, if you're doubting, valid. But it means that the way out of that is to know that your doubt does not define you. It is to know that grace defines you, and it is by grace, yes, through faith, through trust, through loyalty, but it is, that is not the catalyst. It is the vehicle. It's the means by which we get to taste and see that God is good. It's not the determining factor. Thank God. I want to anticipate one objection before we do the Q&A. I've said multiple times that gifts in this sense have strings attached, and you may be asking yourself, wait, how can grace have strings attached and still be grace? It's a good question. It's because it depends on what the nature of those strings are. In Christ, in the gospel, in the Christian faith, through scripture, it is very clear that in God's kingdom patronage system, the own, it is the only example of a patronage system or a covenant relationship where the strings are grace themselves. That, the, that what is owed is only an abundance and more and greater grace. That is what it means to have an upside-down kindness toward his own people, for God to have that, because he redefines it. If you, don't ex if you don't believe me, turn just one page back to Luke 6, verses 35 through 36. This, is, this 
like this is part of the context of what's happening. And so anybody reading this, the Luke 7, should read it through this lens knowing that this is actually an example that's extrapolating this, which is when Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. To be a son of a king is to be a client to that greater patronage. For he is kind to the great ungrateful and the evil. In other words, this is the gift he gives. Therefore, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And when it says even as, it actually means to the same degree as. The strings that are attached to grace as that we embody his grace in the world. And the relationship that we are bound with and through is simply thankfulness and gratitude. Love and loyalty. In other words, worship. So guess what? You're doing it. And yeah, I appreciate when Darren was saying at the beginning, like, hey, sometimes you have to still yield everything and like let it go. Not that you, you like put it aside. You're, not, you're somebody different here when you walk into church. But Jesus doesn't expect perfection. He demonstrated it. And that perfection, that reputation is the basis of our relationship with God. And that frees us to just be where we are. And that's okay. Now, how does that strike you? Let me read the, what I said that this passage on, on, on first blush, what this was about, that there's a centurion who had need. Jesus has compassion and he goes to him. The centurion sees and appreciates Jesus' unique authority and Jesus is amazed that he understands and that he sees and there's a degree of faith. And so in response to that, he responds with grace to heal the servant and how linear that is. How do, I point this out not because I want you to feel like in Scripture you are not getting it at first blush, but how much treasure, how much beauty, and how much of a gift it is beyond what we think, and to encourage you to keep digging into it. So, it looks like we have no questions this morning. So communion, what I was saying earlier during the baptism, is a... (laughs) It is a family meal, and it's a family reunion. It is one that is sealing and seals us in a, what is called to in the the theological kind of category is that this is a a covenant renewal, kind of like you're you're having vows, you're doing, renewing your vows as a a, a spouse, uh, two spouses. But with Jesus being the bridegroom and the church being his bride, what he is saying in, our, in giving us this sacrament is as often as you doubt that we are in a loyal, faithful relationship, remember, take this bread, take this wine and know that I am committed to you, that I love you, that you are my son or daughter and nothing can change that. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was with his disciples. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. Likewise, he took the wine. He poured it out. And he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission or for the forgiveness of sins. This is freedom so that you may know you can always and ever approach me knowing that all you need to bring is your need. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim, he says, my death until I return. You proclaim, you, in a sense, brag 
of your need and my goodness and my love and my grace for you until I come back. So if that is you, if all you have to offer Jesus is your need because you know like the centurion that you're not worthy, not necessarily because of a moral gap, but yes, absolutely because of a moral gap, but also because of his faithfulness as a divine patron and perfect mediator, this is for you. This is what it looks like to live and to love with him as his body, the church.